This morning, I want to invite you to turn your Bibles first with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, and I want to begin this morning in just a moment with prayer. We're going to launch off of our thoughts in Luke chapter 2, and then we're going to go to one particular Old Testament passage where we're going to be this morning. Let me begin with prayer. Father, I want to just pause and thank you again for the joyous truths we've been able to sing. We thank you now for the Bible, for your word. We're so thankful that this morning we're not making this up. We're not sitting around waiting for some kind of inspiration, but that we can go to this holy book that you have given us and that has been preserved for us and translated into our own tongue so that we might know with absolute certainty the hope that you have given to us in your son Jesus. Bless us now and fill the hearts of your people with joy. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin with Luke chapter 2, verse 14, and I want to ask a question with you. What exactly do the angels mean when they say, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased? In particular, I want to ask the question this morning, what is this peace, and where is it? Because this morning, if we're honest, we know it's not here, not right now. There's glimpses, there's, there's uh, little small tastes of this piece. It's why it's such a joy to come into this room this morning and, and see my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ, my family, as it were, where there's peace. There's um, joy, and it's real, and it's authentic, and it's, it's, it's deep, and it's it's real. It's, it's wonderful. It, this, is, this is a rare thing in this world to walk into a room like this with this many people and to have joy and to have know that you have love and kindness and peace and forgiveness and grace, not with perfection, but real nonetheless. And yet, in spite of the fact that we know some of this peace now, we, we know that we don't experience it to the fullest. We know there's war, not only in Ukraine, but other places around the world. We know that only a few miles from here at Concord Hospital, doubtless right this moment, there are people whose hearts are filled with sorrow because of the illness of of a dear one, a loved one, or, or someone who's just died. That is not the exception. That, that's the norm. Death, disease. That is, is some of those examples I shared you with you, of those, of those personal examples of some friends. What's perhaps most troubling about those is that they're not exceptional. We live in a world where you get those kinds of reports and your heart is downcast and, and you're, you're saddened. But what's even more difficult is that we live in a world where that kind of thing is not exceptional. We expect it. It's just the way it is right now underneath the sun. So what is this peace? Is this just some kind of sentimental wish? 
that the angels were announcing? Is this just to try to give men and women a little bit of reprieve for a little time at Christmas, maybe, so they can maintain this mythical idea that somehow there some way will be peace on earth one day? That's not mythical, and they're not being merely sentimental. They are serious. They are They are heavenly serious. They are rejoicing and they are announcing that with the birth of this baby, there will be on earth peace among men with whom God is pleased. It's astonishing in light of the absence of peace that we have right now, the conflict we have in families, in businesses, between employees and owners and governmental parties. I mean, can you imagine announcing this in our capital of our United States in between the the different Republican Democratic parties and peace there? Are you kidding me? The angels are serious. Peace on earth. So what do they mean by this? The question is even heightened when you consider that biblical peace is more than mere absence of conflict. Biblical peace stems from this Hebrew word and concept, shalom. You know that word, shalom. And it's not just the absence of conflict. It doesn't mean there's no more wars. It means that, but it means more than that. It means life and abundance and happiness and joy and and food and dancing and singing and health and happiness. It, It really means that. Shalom is a quality of life. So they are declaring that with the birth of this baby, God is going to bring in on earth shalom, this peace among men with whom he is pleased. Amazing. What is this peace? What did the angels mean by this announcement? Why did God send them with this announcement to accompany the birth of Jesus? And I want to answer that question by going with you, if you want to turn your Bible, if you have a copy of God's Word, to Isaiah 66. Isaiah chapter 66, one of the most beautiful prophecies in the Scriptures to tell us what God has in store. For those who love him. Isaiah 66. I want to begin in chapter 66. Verse. I'm sorry. I'm looking at... (laughs) Here we go. I'm sorry. I want 65. That's why I'm thrown off. It's Christmas. (laughs) Isaiah 65. This is what I want. Verse 18 through 24. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem And be glad in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. There will no longer be in it an infant who lives but a few days. 
or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. And my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. It will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer, and while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will graze together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. It's beautiful. We may have questions about this passage, and undoubtedly you do, and I do. But sometimes we just need to savor a reading of Scripture and acknowledge that's beautiful. It speaks of a beautiful future, a beautiful peace, and it is intended by God to extend comfort to people who live in difficult times like we do. This whole section in Isaiah began all the way back in Isaiah 40 with comfort, comfort, my people. In the Bible, God gives little prophecies of the future that are like windows. They're like windows in which we are to look into with childlike wonder to understand what's in store in the future. And before we, I, want to, I just want to walk down through this and make some observations this morning. But I want to set it in context this morning. In, in, in terms of this time of year, we are accustomed to, um, and we generally think it's wonderful, that children are filled with anticipation. Not just of Christmas and opening presents this morning. Maybe this morning you already did. Maybe you're going to be a little bit later. But this time of year, we also... Um, exercise our imaginations and we encourage children to exercise their imaginations and wherever you are on the Santa debate uh, uh, you may be thinking well some of us think well that's that's bad well maybe maybe it is but I will tell you increasingly in these days with little children I do not think it is a bad thing however we go about Christmas that we stoke their imaginations that children are filled with a sense of wonder and, and think about what might be. Because God in his word does that with us. And yet many of us are, even we who profess faith in Christ, have become essentially orthodox Scrooges. We have essentially come to an understanding of the Christian faith. I understand that Jesus is God's son. I understand that I'm a sinner. I understand that I need to be saved and reconciled to God. I believe in Jesus Christ. I'm forgiven of my sins. I'm reconciled to God. But that's about it. I know it's good, but I don't have much hope more than that, except I guess I'll go to heaven someday. And for so many Christians, that's about the extent of their hope. And that's just wrong. 
Because God has given in his word numerous passages that he intentionally stokes the fire of the imagination of the hearts of his people. He wants his people to listen to what he's told them about what he has in store for them. And like little children looking through a window at something beautiful and glorious beyond what they could imagine, God wants his people to look in the scriptures and to let their minds anticipate and their hearts be full of what will it be like. There's nothing in here that, that God says, well, just hang in there. I'll, I'll be around eventually. God intentionally tells us, tells his suffering people, this is what I'm going to do for you in the future. And this is serious. This is serious because the people that Isaiah is preaching to, they are in the shadow of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And I can't even tell you this morning in this audience what Assyrians and Babylonians tend to do to their enemies. It's brutal. And what they do to men and women and to boys and girls, they live in the same world that we live in. A world of death, a world of violence and threat, of disorder and chaos and evil and oppression And it's into this world, to these suffering people on the threshold of being overrun by the Babylonians, hauled off into exile, that God gives them these words of hope. And if these words of hope are not real and concrete, that is not not just a mistake, that is cruel. How cruel it would be of God to record such words in his scriptures for people who are about to go undergo such trying difficulties to stoke their hearts with hope only for it to be generally just this, well, it'll work out in the end and heaven will be nice. It's not that. It's not what he recorded in his holy word. If you, I want to tell you a general principle and this is why I was thinking about this the last few days. I was thinking of these people I love, and, and I know that they believe in God's glorious future, but I was just thinking in a fresh way how important it is for Christians to have clear in our heads and our hearts what it is that God has in store for us in the future. If you have experienced or you are about to experience real loss, Maybe you got a diagnosis. Maybe your spouse or one of your children received a diagnosis. Maybe you lost your job. Maybe your health was taken from you. Maybe your finances were lost. Whatever the case may be. If you have experienced or are about to experience loss, suffering, conflict of some kind, disease or death... And you have no real concrete hope of a restoration and even greater gain in the future. No wonder you're overcome with despair and sadness. And why wouldn't you be? Why wouldn't you be depressed? If in view of the losses and the sufferings in this world... If in your heart, even as a Christian, you have in front of you no real concrete thoughts 
about what God has in store for you in the future, then the loss that you have or that you are about to experience is utterly devastating so that songs like Joy to the World ring hollow in your heart. And that's how you become a Christian Orthodox Scrooge. Bah humbug. That joy to the world stuff, all that, that's for people who are Christians who haven't really experienced real loss and the way things really can go wrong. Uh, If you're here this morning, my Christian Orthodox Scrooge, or maybe you're not a Christian Scrooge, you're wrong. And I want to tell you why. Not from the authority of my imagination, but you'll notice here in the next few moments, all I'm going to do is I'm going to point us to God's holy, inerrant, inspired, eternal, infallible word. And we're going to look in the window together for a few minutes. And I want to show you what is in store for those who know and love Jesus Christ. First of all, look, let's just look for a few minutes together. First, I want you to notice that this, this glorious future for God's people is very earthy and physical future. You notice that? God says, be glad forever what I create, a Jerusalem. Up in verse 17, God's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. Verse 18 and following is, is just before that new heavens and new earth in the millennial kingdom, the thousand year reign of Christ on earth that Revelation speaks of. But never mind the timing for a minute, whatever your view is on the timing, just notice that everything in the passage I've read this morning is very earthy and physical. That's important. Because when you get that diagnosis about something going wrong in your body, or someone's you love their body, and death may be in the prospect, and if you think, wow, uh, I guess that's the end. And you don't have any real hope of a concrete, physical, earthy, resurrected future. You're going to be discouraged. But everything here is not in this ethereal, spiritual realm. Oh, it is spiritual. Don't make me, don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that it's not spiritual. It's wonderfully spiritual. But the future that God has in store for us is a renewed, glorified future, the way he created and intended things in the beginning. He made us physical and spiritual, body and spirit united, one not bad. Body's not bad. Earth is not bad. Physical's not bad. God looked at all he had made and declared it is So I'm a Christian, I'm a pastor, and the hope I'm looking forward to, I'm going to have a new body. That's going to be good. I think I'll have hair. Be a little warmer. More seriously, I'm going to have a body with which I can shake the hand of my loved ones. Hug. Eyes with which I can see my friends and fellow believers, and especially my Lord Jesus Christ. Got feet I can walk, hands that I can work with. I'm going to have a mouth 
and a digestive system with which I can use to eat. More about that, I'm getting ahead. It's earthy physical future. If your form of, listen, I say this very strongly, if your form of Christian future hope doesn't have in it a physical earth and a physical resurrected body, that's heresy and you've slipped over into error. Jesus Christ, when he rose from the dead, rose with a glorified body and he came to establish, as the angels announced, this shalom, this peace on where? Earth. It's very earthy and physical. It's, it's, I'm, I'm emphasizing this because I think that many Christians have laid hold of a lie that somehow, not only are we, that we are spiritual, but they somehow laid hold of a lie that somehow physical is bad. And all we're going to have for the future is like ghosts floating around in heaven. The biblical gospel is the kingdom of God and Christ on earth. Heaven and earth united. Secondly, I want you to notice there's a beautiful city, Jerusalem, verse 18. Behold, and be glad and rejoice in what I create, for behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing. Jerusalem is the capital city. It's not the Jerusalem we know today. It's, it's going to be in that location, those coordinates, but it will be renewed. It will be the city as the scriptures say, of the great king. Capital city of the Lord Jesus when he reigns on this earth. And as the capital city, it will just be representative of the life and the peace and the order that will extend over the whole earth. Now, we're country people, most of us here. Uh, That's why we live here. Uh, We don't live down in Boston. It's nuts down there. It's crazy. I mean, I've lived in New Hampshire. I'm born in New Hampshire. And I still think of Boston, even though it's an hour and a half away, as like another country. It's like a foreign land. I mean, I I like to visit it once every five years or so. But, you know, it's city. We're country people. But you have to admit, even if you're a country person, when you go to a city and and you see its order and its architecture and its design and, and all of the mechanics that go on, you have to be impressed at the wealth, at the order, at the grandeur, at the way in which men and women have worked together to make all this work. Cities are impressive. Jerusalem will be made new. It'll be the city of the great king. Listen, it won't have any work projects going on. There'll be no roads being refinished. There will be no shoddy workmanship. There will be no buildings collapsing. There will be no bad taste. <laughs> Everything will be according to Jesus' taste. And uh, it will be uniform and beautiful and creative and glorious and gleaming and bright and thoughtful and sensible. It will make sense. And, and the streets and the buildings, and it will all be grand and gorgeous. It will take your breath away. It will be a city made fit for the king and for his people. Thirdly, I want you to notice in verses 18 through 19, this glorious future is one in which Christ's people will be filled with joy and gladness. Verse 18, I be glad and rejoice in what I create. Verse 19, I'm sorry, I, I create Jerusalem, verse 18, and her people for gladness. That's a lot of gladness just in one verse. 
Do you think God's trying to get something across here by repetition? I also, says God, will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people, and there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. There, we tend to be aware of whether they're movies or films, Christmas films, or, or Christmas books, or Christmas scenes, and we see these beautiful cities. Maybe it's the North Pole. Maybe it's Santa's capital, and, and there's elves. But, but everybody, for the most part, is happy there, and they're smiling, and they, they're working together. And, well, that, that, that is imagination. That, that is, that's not real. This is real. A city inhabited by untold numbers of people who are full of gladness and joy. Think of it. A gathering in a future in which there's not one person with a heartache. Not one person with a bad diagnosis. Not one person with a loved one who has a certain certain concern. Not one person who, who you ask, how are things going? And they say, well... There will be not one grump. There will be not one person sad or depressed. There will be no one with an aching heart because there will be no weeping or crying. Not because it's not allowed, but because there will be no reason for it. It's our hearts. Our minds can't even hardly think of it. But God wants us to. God wants us to imagine a room full of people who are just full of pure joy and gladness with no sorrows in their hearts because of what he's done in his son, Jesus Christ. Fourthly, I want you to notice with me verse 20, no infant mortality, no childhood diseases, or illness of any kind. Referenced our friend Jimmy Snowden and Crystal's son, James. James is a very happy boy, but he's severely disabled. And... We don't even know maybe some of the trials that he goes through because he can't even articulate what he's experiencing. And all around the earth, there are untold numbers of boys and girls who are born with severe difficulties, the heartaches of untold numbers of women who experience a miscarriage and lose their little one. This is the reality of earth right now, but the time is coming in the future when Jesus is king on the earth, when there will be no more miscarriages, no more infant mortality, no more childhood diseases, no need for braces, no need for surgeries or medications. And I want you to notice again, this is not wishful thinking. This is black on white revelation from the holy word of God. That in the kingdom of Christ, there will not be any of these things. Fifthly, I want you to notice, and I have quite a few lists here. We'll see how far we get here this morning. We'll try to move a little more quickly. Uh, Notice in verses 21 and 22, I'm just looking through the window with you. Letting our hearts be stoked with joy. There will be building and cultivation. They'll build houses, says God, and inhabit them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit or plant and another eat. 
Will we work in the kingdom of Christ? Yes. Not in futility, but with joy. I think I'm not alone when if I say that if I have the ability and the time and, and I enjoy building something or working on something. But what's really frustrating now is if the carpenter ants eat whatever I build or if I can't even have a garden because the deer and the rabbits and every other kind of creature under heaven comes and devours whatever it is I'm going to plant. But God says in the kingdom that his people will build houses. They'll build houses. They'll think about what kind of house they want to have. They'll have the resources, the tools, the ability, and they'll have joy. And they'll build houses and they'll, they'll create vineyards and gardens. And there will be no fear of deer and other critters coming to eat them. The gardens, that is. Because apparently Jesus is going to say that they can't do that anymore. He'll, he'll give them other things to eat. Their vineyards will not be taken by another. Their houses will not be torn down. They'll be building and cultivation without the curse or threat of loss. Six observation, verse 21, is very basic. But there will be good, delicious food. I can see it. Somebody said, what did the preacher talk about at church today? He talked about how in the future kingdom that those who believe in Jesus are going to have really good food. I did. I'm saying that. I am. Because you know as well as I do that you look forward, at least most of you, to certain kinds of food this year, kind of time of year. Certain kind of, I mean, lots of different kinds of food and cheese and crackers and, and blueberry coffee cake and all kinds of different things. Oh, Henry bars. Oh, boy. And Christmas cookies. I'll stop. They're good. Who made all that? Who made it? Not the devil. God. God made it. He made it for us. Who made the, the glands and, and your ability to taste and smell? When you could smell. <laughs> Thanks. Some of us can't smell. God. God. And he says here, they will eat from their vineyards. I'm just making a very observation. It's verse 21. I rest my case. Well, one more case. Jesus, when he drinks of the wine at the Lord's last supper with his disciples, he says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink it with you anew in my father's kingdom. You may say that's, that's too earthy. That's not spiritual enough. Well, in the kingdom, if you're a Christian, you'll be looking at your savior drinking and you're going to be embarrassed because you're going to be the only one that's not eating or drinking. It's good. It's going to be good, delicious food. Seventh, long life. Long life as originally designed by God in the garden. Verse 22, as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. You know that I, I like trees, enjoy trees. I don't hug them. Um, I tend to cut some of them down. Um, but I, I enjoy them and I especially enjoy old oak trees and and uh, there's some white oak trees around in this area that are, are got to be over 100 years old. And you know how that can be. And they're older than any of us in this room. They're a testimony to all of us <laughs> that we die because they outlive us. But not anymore. 
In fact, there's actually even a beautiful description of Christ's people in Isaiah 61, verse 3, where God refers to his people as oaks of righteousness. They will be called oaks of righteousness because his people will be as long-lived and longer than the longest-living oaks. The planting of the Lord. Of course, when we believe in Jesus Christ, and one day when he calls us and we are raised, we will no longer fear death ever again. We will live and live unto eternity. We will never be bored. We will always be in the presence of God in Christ. We will always have things to do by which we can honor him and please him and worship him. Just a few more observations, okay? Verse 22 There will be enjoyable work. Enjoyable work, verse 22, second half of it, my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. It means you'll have tools and you'll live long enough that you'll outlive your tools. Your tools won't outlive you. And verse 23, especially, they will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. In our occupation and in the kingdom, when during that millennial kingdom, when there still is marriage and when there still is little ones being born, I know you have questions about that, but there will be no loss there. But there will be work. It'll be wonderful work. And sometimes we wonder, some people have this idea of be streets of gold and just one perpetual worship service where you're doing what you're doing right now and just sitting. And somehow, especially for the kids here this morning, church for unto eternity just does not seem all that exciting, <laughs> if we're honest. Well, there will be church. There will be assembly. There will be singing. There will be praising. There will be an honoring of the word of God. There will be a dressing of our great king, not through prayer, but through face-to-face, calling upon him, speaking to him, thanking him, blessing him, praising him. But then we will disperse and we will go off and we will go about our various duties because our king has given it to us and it is for him and for his glory. We'll have occupation, we'll have work, and there will not be any futility to it. What we do will last. What we do will be done well. What we do will not be ruined by someone else or by something that we can't control. Verse 23, another observation. Children will be safe. This is so precious. It's the heartache of our, all heartaches right now in this world. Heartache of all heartaches. The children in this world have a limited safety. Kids, you're here this morning with your parents. You're safe. And if you're with God, you're safe. And you're trusting in God, you're safe. But it's a reality in this world. And all the adults here understand what I'm getting at. From the womb, all through childhood, we live in a very dark world. We live in a culture this Christmas, like few Christmases before, where in our country, we don't even tell little boys anymore that they're little boys and little girls that they're little girls. And unspeakable things are done in the name of progress. Those days will be over. Those days will be over. One of my favorite verses, church family knows, you hear me reference this passage in Isaiah 66, but Zechariah 8, we don't, have time, we don't have time to turn there, but during this same period of time, during this reign of Christ on this earth, this thousand-year millennial kingdom, 
I love this verse, these two verses. Old men and women, Zechariah chapter 8, verse 4. Old men and women, old men and old women, that means long life, will again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each man with his staff in his hand. In other words, they'll live to an old age. They'll be safe. That's another tragedy. Older men and women in our country are not safe. How, how horrified are we? It's just normal now that in our cities, older men and older women are assaulted. It's just norm in our culture. It's vile. That won't be the case in this kingdom in the future. Old men and women will be safe. They won't have to worry about being deceived, abused. And as for children, Zechariah 8 verse 5 says, The city of Jerusalem, the streets of the city, will be filled with boys and girls playing in its streets. Does that sound like Christmas? That's not Santa's idea at the end of the day. That's God's idea. God loves boys and girls and he wants them to be safe and he wants them to play and laugh and rejoice. And in Jesus' city in Jerusalem in the future, this is in God's word, the boys and girls are going to play in his city and they're, they're going to be safe. And there'll be nothing to harm them, no one to hurt them. And Jesus, it will be his will and the will of his father that the boys and girls have at it. And I guess the angels will have to clean up the mess afterwards. I don't know how it will work, but, but it will be wonderful. Isn't that a beautiful picture? A few more observations. There will peace be peace and life in the animal kingdom, verse 25. Wolf and lamb will graze together. We, we saw this morning a, a bobcat out in front of our home and and uh, I, I'm telling you right now, he's not at peace with the mice or the rabbits that are out there. They, <laughs> they have a little bit of a conflict going on. He was out to get his Christmas breakfast. But there will be peace in that day. And seriously, the, the, we, we look around and we see the suffering even of animals in our day. And there will be no questioning in verse 24, where is God? We're going back a little bit, but verse 24, God says, It will come to pass before they call, I will answer. There will be no more questioning, where is God? For God will be with his people. As I said, there really won't be prayer as we know it now. I suppose there will be prayer, but, but it will be different because you can actually go to where Jesus is and see him, speak to him. Lastly, this morning, verse 25 they will do no evil or harm on all my holy mountain. That's a reference to Jerusalem, the city, and the whole earth will be the Lord's. It will all be his kingdom, the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of Christ. No evil or harm. There's enough evil and harm just in this one town or in this one county alone that if we knew of it this morning, it would disgust us. When Jesus comes and he's king over all the earth, no evil, no harm. This, to come back to Luke chapter 2, this is what the angels meant when they announced an on earth peace, shalom among men with whom God is pleased. We recognize that this is not yet come, but God sent his son and Jesus... 
lived among us and died for us and rose from the dead as the first installment of his work as king and savior and bringing in the fulfillment of this beautiful picture. It's still coming. And when I hear of friends who have cancer, when I think of the possibility of of my own, the brevity of my own life or my loved ones, this is what I think about. I'm serious. My mind drifts to passages like this because that fires my heart that whatever loss I experience here and now, it it pales in comparison to the gain that is set before us in Christ and in his kingdom. Believers in Christ ultimately cannot lose anything, ultimately. All is gain. What Christ has in store for us, what God has in store for us, is wonderful beyond telling. And we need to exercise our biblical imagination a little bit more. Let our minds wander to the goodness and to the joy and to the safety and to the health and the love and the peace of those days which are coming. For the kingdom of Christ is coming. There's only one question left this morning. There's no question as to what this peace is. It's this biblical peace. And we've only looked at one passage that speaks of this future blessed peace on earth established by Jesus the King. There's one main question left, though. Just who are these men with whom God is pleased? Did you notice that's what the angels announced? Peace and on earth peace among men with whom God is pleased? Well, the answer to that can be found also in Isaiah 66. You could look elsewhere, but here's a very concise answer. Chapter 66, verse 2. Second half of the verse. God says, to this one I will look. That's an expression of favor, of approval, of pleasure. So God's telling us, this is the man or the woman with whom I am pleased. You want to know? You want to know who is the man or woman with whom I am pleased? Who is the man or woman who will receive and experience this peace on earth? Who will enter the kingdom? Here it is. To this one I will look, to him who is humble, contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. Humble, that means you face the truth about who you are. You're made by God. You didn't make yourself. You're a creature. You're not the creator. You are made in the image of God. You don't make God up. God made you up. He is God. You're not. He is the owner. He has the right to determine how you live and how I live. And none of us have lived as we ought. We are all sinners. Humility. Contrite of spirit means recognizing that I have sinned. 
given up the game of trying to present myself as better than I really am. Contrite of spirit means that you recognize your sin and you allow your heart to be broken over it. And thirdly, who trembles at my word. What does that mean? That what God has revealed to you in his holy word, you believe it. You tremble at it because it's the word of God. And if God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting shalom, life and peace. Recognize you need that humility. Recognize, contrite of spirit, that you're a sinner. That it was necessary that Jesus die on the cross for your sins. And that if God has promised that all who believe in Jesus Christ, as he has promised, are forgiven of their sins and given the guarantee and absolute certainty of experiencing the kingdom of God, this peace on earth. In faith, you believe it. You tremble at his word with joy. Let's pray. God, may that be found among us this morning. May we be humble, contrite of spirit, and may we tremble at your word. I pray this morning that the hearts of the boys and girls here this morning will be fired up with thoughts of how wonderful the kingdom of Jesus will be, that they will trust in Jesus. And I pray for those of us who are older, men and women, maybe some of us who trusted in Jesus a long time ago, but we've lost sight of the good that you have in store for us, that you've revealed in your word. Forgive us, our Father, for not trembling at your word and not taking your scriptures at face value, for forgetting the things that you've revealed to us. And as we confess our sins, we thank you that you're faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that the most God-honoring thing that many of us could do this morning is confessing our sin is now in faith to let our hearts and our minds be filled with wonder and anticipation of what you have in store. Jesus, we love you. What a great Savior you are. We are sorry and we grieve that you had to suffer so, but we know you did it willingly to bring in the kingdom and to bring into the kingdom those who are your own. We want to be yours. We pray this morning that if there's any here who have yet to trust in you as Savior, I pray, Lord, for that dear one, that today they will humbly confess their sin, need for a Savior, and trust in you, Lord Jesus, to be saved from judgment and to receive the hope of a wonderful, glorious future with you in your kingdom. We thank you. And we ask this in your name. Amen.